0: to the Legal Marketing Studio, a biweekly podcast devoted to examining successful marketing strategies driving new business development at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. In every episode, you'll find actionable takeaways that you can implement immediately. The podcast is a production of Picture More Business, a corporate photography studio with a core focus on the legal industry. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I am joined by Dan Timmons. Dan is a trust estates and elder law attorney and a certified financial planner. His career focuses on preserving family wealth, protecting individuals' assets, and minimizing fees, taxes, and expenses when transferring property between charities and loved ones. Dan teaches in-person and online continuing legal education classes, speaks and writes to the public frequently, and has published articles for AARP Online, the Financial Planning Association, Kiplinger's, Investopedia, and other organizations. Dan, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio.
1: Good morning, Michael.
0: So I wanted to just start with... A quick snapshot of your practice, because there's a couple of things that are unique about your practice, particularly that you're both an attorney and a certified financial planner. So what do your typical clients
1: look like and what do they come to you to help solve. My firm provides services more than just perhaps a trust and estates firm uh, in the fact that we're able to identify financial issues, problems or opportunities that come up when we look at things that perhaps a financial planner would. But the actual tenor and tone of the practice is specifically just people who are in need. Now, what does that mean? It means that you don't need to have $50 million. It means you don't need to have Medicaid to work with my firm. You just need to have a financial need to preserve assets in some way, shape, or form that I'm able to assist with. Uh, And we've been able to do that with all types of clients. My typical client can be anyone from a single woman who's unmarried and has no children to a bread and butter white picket fence family with two children and a dog and everything is, is just fine in their lives. But the practice is based toward wealth preservation and transference of assets. And we've done very well with an approach like that. And it has given us an edge so far in the industry. So tell me what
0: your client development process looks like. How do people generally find you, and then how do how do they
1: ultimately become a client? When I had initially started off in the practice, my thought and feeling had been: if I just advertise, if I send a lot of mailings out to the public, if I just keep things very broad, uh, I'll eventually cast a wide enough net that I'll catch some fish. And that quickly turned out to be not an effective way to find clients. Everyone finds that out when they're in business. You know, certain, certain forms of law make themselves available to that. Uh, trust in estates does not avail itself very well to general mass marketing. Uh, I found that receiving referrals from other professionals was initially the best way for me to start building up a book of business. I'm in a practice area where people are very – Secretive about what they do with me. You probably don't want your children necessarily knowing how much money you have that you may be leaving them out of their of your estate plan. So referrals weren't always that big from clients. But as time went on and my reputation grew a little and some of my marketing strategies uh, became uh, to to ahead, uh, I started getting more client referrals the biggest part of my practice as of late though has been generated by publications if not directly indirectly uh, so this is a good opportunity to discuss how that can work for other attorneys how it's worked for me and how I hope to continue to take it to the next level soon thereafter
0: so we're going to talk specifically about the way that you use content so we'll we'll get to you know the the publications that you write for and sort of why you you know have focused on writing for them but how did you start? Writing because nobody starts out and just says I'm going to go write for Kiplingers and then writes for them.
1: Right? People may think that it just never happens that way. You're never able to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so Quite so how like did that. how
0: did, what was the, what was the journey for you? How did you start writing content? Were you blogging? Were you putting it up on uh, I don't know message? Board? Where where, were you,
1: where did you start? producing content for. You nailed it, Michael. I started by blogging. I wasn't even a fully licensed attorney, and I had started blogging. Now, this is about a decade ago. This is my second career, I should have. My first career was as a financial planner. When you're in financial planning, sometimes it's a little difficult to write because your firm may be overseeing the content. They may have a compliance department, but as an attorney, you have a little bit more free reign. Uh, And I was writing about things that Perhaps at some level, I had no right to be writing about. When I started, it was with blogging. And the way that I started specifically was gearing education towards attorneys. I was speaking about pretty high-end stuff in the estate planning world, at least what I thought was high-end at that point. I was licensed for less than a year at some points, and I was talking about things that, frankly, someone who only has a year under their belt in legal practice probably shouldn't have been discussing too much online. I got it right, typically. That's the good thing. But what I didn't understand at the time was this. No one cares what a one-year-out-of-law-school attorney has to say if that listening audience are attorneys. They could Google me and they could see this guy just graduated a year or two ago. Why am I going to listen to his commentary on something like a turnover proceeding or something like a will dispute? What did I really know? And the other thing was this readership was particularly low. By trying to speak to a very high-end audience that was very specific, I wanted to reach out to trust and estates attorneys let them know I'm better than you when clearly I may not have been. I didn't get much readership. Surprise, surprise. What happened over time is I actually stopped blogging entirely. And instead, what I attempted to do was reach out to organizations that were interested in hearing more about what services that I offered. When I say organizations, things like the Multiple Sclerosis Society, or maybe American Cancer Society, Salvation Army, I attempted to start changing the message that I wrote in articles for them. And after about three or four years of taking a hiatus from blogging, I was able to take those skills that I got from writing for other organizations, which has been a huge part of my story, and turned my blog into something that spoke to the public. Instead of talking about something like a, uh, a will dispute, now I was talking about things like what happens when your mother passes when you can't find the will, or what are the top five ways that you can make a mistake in a will that you draft. I ended up speaking more to the public, not to professionals, and lo and behold, I didn't need to cast such a wide net I could just say, I'm going to make a change in my approach and try to contact individuals at a very wide scale and let the people who are interested in my thought-making process learn more about what I have to say in my writing.
0: A couple of things that seem interesting to me there. Uh, The first one is identifying an audience. You know, the audience that seems at first blush to be the audience you want to write for may not be the right audience. And there's also a learning process you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to figure out how to fix them. So what I'm curious about is how you came to realize that you were writing for the wrong audience, whether that was an external observation that someone else made, whether it was a a coach or an associate or a colleague or another attorney, and then how, how you came to fix it, whether it was simply writing for someone else who gave you direction in terms of what was more interesting to them or whether
1: you were figuring that out on your own? The genesis of all of my understanding as to writing for my career has been based off of blogging. And I say that for this reason. I could see how many people were reading my blogs. And when I had first started off at the turn of the last decade, it was very little people. You know, it it was probably five people, six people. At some point, after you write 30 or 40 articles, and if you look me up, you'll see these 30 or 40 articles, and you see a a younger man than you see today, you may well, if you look at them a few times, double the number of views that they've ever had. That was the first thing that was a tip off to me, because I said, it sounds like and it looks like I'm writing for my own edification. It doesn't actually look like I'm reaching anybody. Instead of me saying, let me Change who I write to, I just said, this doesn't work at first. And I turned it off. It took the experience of learning that people out there did want to listen to me. I was trying to go toward an audience that didn't want to listen to me. By finally realizing who was interested in hearing what I had to say, which are people who just walk down the street every day and have a financial problem. Uh, I was able to say, let me look at this phase again of of my professional career? And should I be writing? And lo and behold, I decided to say, let's boil this down to the most simple point, What is a will? What transfers by a trust? What is a mistake that somebody makes when they try to draft their own document? What I found was that by changing the content to something that everyone can understand, it became something that was appealing, at least to more people. The way I could tell, again, was the number of views on my blog. The blog is the genesis of everything for me because that you can figure out how many people have actually watched. Yeah, I can mail out a newsletter and I do that with a great deal of frequency, but I can never tell how many people have actually read it. I can tell you how many people i mailed it to with my stamp count, uh, but that's about it. With the blog, I can tell how many people have at least looked it over for about five seconds and you said not interested, but something there was interesting enough to get them to turn to the page. So I would always suggest people start in their writing careers with attempting to do blogs or something else that can quantify how many people are looking at what you are reading.
0: And I think that quantification aspect is important. And we'll come back to that, because I think once you get away from the blog, it's a little bit harder to quantify some of the returns. Mm-hmm. I know we talked about that in our prep. But before we get to that, I wanted to hear how you transitioned from the blogging to writing for these larger publications. You know, did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? Was it a, a random connection that, that you happened to have? You know, what was it
1: that brought you into that, to that orbit? When I began to decide to take things to the next level, because the blog at some point isn't enough, you know, unless maybe you're Kim Kardashian or or some other celebrity who uh, maybe they have – they certainly have more people who are interested in them than me, but I don't know if their content is going to be any better or worse or whatever it may be. I realized that I was never going to reach a lot of people with my blog without taking another step, without getting some type of exposure. I was magically waiting for someone to type in the name of an article I had written. And there are probably 17 other people who wrote on the exact same topic with the exact same title to it. I sought out, Certain organizations and certain people that may benefit me. I have one PR firm that I went to and I befriended one of the owners of the PR firm. And when I say befriended, took them out to lunch. I am actually friends with this individual at this point. And I let them know. I said, you know, I know that you are the person who tries to make other individuals look good, and you typically do it by sending it to content providers. How can I reach out to content providers? Now, these content providers, don't forget, are all over the place. You have CNN. You have any type of television news network. You have plenty of of print publications. And, of course, you have online publications all over. And what they did was they were able to say, let me shop around some of your articles. And so I actually shopped around and wrote a few articles and said, here's a under 1,000 or approximately 1,000-word article, and it was geared toward a specific audience. Uh, For example, I may say, what are the three reasons that – and the only three reasons you would want to have an irrevocable trust – And lo and behold, a great example is she shopped that around and Kiplinger's was interested in it. They put it up on their website. And the next thing I knew, Yahoo Finance had picked it up. So that was a nice little gig. And I said, all right, I'm on to something here. I need to go to the people that are looking for content. You know, when we talk about some of the companies that I do write for, Investopedia, they are looking for content. There are a lot and a lot of content providers. Don't forget the news cycle is very short right now. If you have something on your website from two days ago, you're finished. They're looking for people to contribute. And this representative for this PR company was able to explain to me that they're all over the place. You can find content providers. It's basically people who are looking for what you have to offer. Now, the big thing that I always had to be concerned with is I wonder if people care what I'm writing. Is it going to be a high enough quality for them? And let me submit to you this, Michael. The quality does not have to necessarily be grade A. They need so much content that you can probably put out a B-level publication, maybe even a C-plus, and they'll still run with it because that's how desperately they want to put up content at this point.
0: So when you started out, you were using your PR contact. Are are you still using a, a PR person to help you
1: shop content around, or are you doing it more directly yourself? I do a bit of both at this point. So I'll give you two great examples. We already mentioned two of them. Kiplinger's. If I want to give something to Kiplinger's, if I want to submit something, I will give it to the PR representative because she has a direct contact there. I will also on occasion ask if she wants to send it. Another source we spoke about, the Financial Planning Magazine. They picked up some of my articles in the past. Others I will reach out to directly. What does a trust and estates and elder law attorney want to do? I want to work with people who want to transfer their money. Who are people that want to transfer their money? Old people. My point is this, that older people tend to be more willing to transfer their money or look forward to the opportunity to say, when I die, how am I going to give it to the people that I want to instead of going to attorneys and the courts and the government? And so I reached out to AARP and AARP gladly accepts articles from people because they have a bunch of content that they need to post as well. And that really set up the fires in my mind that I don't just need to go with someone who has a contact. I can just find an organization that wants to print content and they'll gladly accept it. And that's how I also got involved with Investopedia. So that's the other example I was going to give. So my PR rep, I go to her contacts for general open, this might be an interesting opportunity for a, a content provider, I will search them out. And Investopedia is great because of this. Though I am a certified financial planner, I don't really practice it directly or practice it indirectly. But I'm a CFP and they deal with CFPs. I more or less get 80% of the legal questions that come through Investopedia from clients because I'm the only attorney who's up there. Now, I'm sure other CFP attorneys will find out about this at some point, maybe even after uh, this discussion, but that's fine. There's there's plenty there. But my point is that I was able to stand out that way. So you can either find a contact who will bridge the gap for you, or you find that content provider yourself.
0: A couple of things there to follow up with, but let's go with, um, let's start with sort of the way that you looked at outlets strategically. So you thought about who your audience is, who you need to reach in terms of reaching clients, and then found an outlet that's going to reach those people mm-hmm. in terms of, say, AARP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, you thought in a very tactical way in terms of approaching Investopedia, where your your dual role makes you more interesting to them, but also gives you a leg up on some of the other folks there who can't answer the questions or can't necessarily solve the problem that some people have. So I'm curious if you could expand on that a little bit, You know, the extent to which you are making these decisions in terms of who to approach from a, from a strategic or a tactical standpoint and, you know, and how, how that affects not only who you write for, but how you write and what you write about.
1: I'd say it's almost half and half where I write toward the general public. And the other half is going to be toward people who would refer business to me. For example, I'll sometimes put an article up specifically geared toward financial planners that I'm interested in uh, referring their clients to me. That will be like an Investopedia-type article, for example. Other times, I will want to reach out specifically to the public, not because I think I'm going to get a phone call from them, but because it's going to be a topic that when they Google me, that they'll see I'm familiar with it. So here's a great example. I know that a lot of people right now are attempting to start Medicaid trusts. They don't really know what it is, but they know that Medicaid provides some type of benefit, and if they don't have Medicaid, they're going to have to spend a lot of money on their care, and they're always fearful the nursing home or the government's going to take all their money, which at some level is correct. Uh, So what I'll typically do is say, this is a hot-button topic. Let me write about it. Let me put it on a big media website of some way, shape, or or form, and that way when someone Googles Dan Timmons – Medicaid trust or Dan Timmons income only trust or Medicaid, whatever the term may be, they'll see me and they'll see me on someone else's site. So that's been very helpful because the referral that I got from that first article, which may be geared toward financial planners, they'll say, hey, here's this guy, Dan Timmons, and then they'll Google Dan Timmons Medicaid trust. And there you go. And they say, oh, this guy may actually know what he's talking about. So that's typically how I'm able to to reach out to different professionals. I say 50-50 because that's been an intentional choice. I still try to keep some slightly higher level content, but I don't speak to many attorneys. I don't need to impress my colleagues at this point. Uh, They're not always easy to impress anyway. But someone like a financial planner who may reform me business, I definitely have to impress them. In the public, at the very minimum, they're already going to trust their source of the report referral, and that's going to be their financial planner, accountant, whoever it may be, then they just have to get the backup, the buy-in. And that's where the public documents come in.
0: Something that strikes me there is that it's not only generating leads necessarily, but there's also like a status
1: or a credibility aspect to it. Absolutely, yeah. Reputation, reputation, reputation. And and in fact, I think perhaps the, the most valuable lesson I've learned through this process is that I don't even always need to have a plan as to who I want to reach out to. So I know this would be a little contradictory to what I just said, but it's an important side point that that may even be more important. My important goal is activity. I want to be active. I find that if I'm writing and it's not a great article, it's still active. If I'm writing and it's not going to the right audience, it's still active. The more active I have been, the more I've been able to succeed. It's almost like that analogy where people say, you know, getting to the gym is 50% of the work. It's not 90, but perhaps it is 50% of the work because you can't work out until you get there. What I've found is that being active is sometimes better than the content that I'm actually putting up. Now, I'm not saying everyone drop everything you're doing, all your work, and start writing four hours a day, but you could do that, and you will, I guarantee you, get some type of exposure. They may, you may be exposed for a crazy person, but you know whatever the case may be, you're going to get some type of exposure. From activity comes exposure, and then from there comes the reputability. Getting the exposure and getting picked up by some of these other content providers, the Financial Planning Association, Nasdaq.com, I had an article recently get picked up by Nasdaq.com, leads to reputability. And that's the last phase And reputability ultimately reaches out to a higher level audience. I have an upcoming interview with the New York Times next week, uh, and I should be published in the real estate section regarding real estate at some point in August. Feel free to look. My point is this, from activity comes exposure, ultimately reputability, and then you can take it up to the next level. So I want to talk a bit about
0: metrics and, and goal setting. You know, we started out talking about the blog and using that to kind of figure out Using the metrics to figure out what people are interested in and sort of what your what draws people in. But now we've shifted to something that's much less quantitative. You know, how do you measure how do you measure reputation? How do you measure credibility? Do you have other sort of ways to not necessarily measure these things, but to track them? I mean, do you have goals in mind when you're writing for the, for these publications? Do you have goals in mind? in terms of uh, number of calls that you
1: hope these generate or the kinds of comments that you get? I have weekly and monthly goals that I go over. And I go over it with my staff every week. Uh, Writing goals include blogging. I have to blog once a week at minimum. And I have requirements. My blog has to be between 250 and 450 words. I know people say over 300 is verboten. I, I try to make it entertaining enough. I always attempt to do... A minimum of 2,000 word articles every single month, and I submit them to some of my more preferred uh, uh, partners that are out there, one of which is my, my PR person. And then there's always the goal of trying to write a little bit more. I will offer content when asked. I will answer things on listservs. I'm trying to get my name out there, and I'm trying to get in front of as many people as possible. And those are my goals as far as writing goes. I should add, by the way, I write a letter to somebody every day, which is just a nice side project. But that's not really the topic of what we're discussing today. But as far as how I judge success, success is based on a few things. Number one, the number of clicks. That's pretty important. What I've identified is this. People like chunks of information. When I say, how can I tell my mom I want her to leave me all my money, and that's the name of the article, That gets some interest, but something I probably get more interest out of is what's five things I can say to mom to say I love you financially. When you give it into a number, people just tend to eat it up for whatever reason. They can compartmentalize it, and after, they can stop in the middle of it. They don't feel like they have to finish the article, and that's a good thing to get a buy-in from someone, so I found that has helped my clicks quite a bit. I will sometimes get phone calls. That's a measure of my success. Now, I'll tell you this. People who call because they read something off the internet for me, they tend not to be great clients. But my point is this. A few years ago, Michael, I wasn't even found on the internet. I never got call-ins. I'm like that you know, shop uh, that's a super exclusive shop. No one walks into the shop. Uh, In this case, people are walking into the shop. Uh, and that's been a sign of success for me. And lastly, it's comments that I receive. When I speak to someone, uh, they used to never say, no one said, I read your blog and it was amazing. If it was something as simple as, you know, I'll link onto LinkedIn and sometimes I'll put it onto Facebook, uh, which I'm not very active on Facebook, more so on LinkedIn, I start getting comments now. People never commented, not once in two and a half years when I started. Now I get people comment all the time. Now I get people who I speak to and just in passing, I read your article. That's a sign of success because 80% of the people out there are too busy to pay any attention to anybody other than themselves. And not only here are they paying attention to me, they're letting me know. That's a sign of success. When one person says I'm interested in something you wrote, there may be four other people they just didn't get a chance to tell me yet.
0: You know, the one metric there that I I don't think you got into much is, I mean, the only metric that in the end really matters is does more business come through the door? Do you have a way of tying all of your writing efforts to your actual business numbers? Do you track that in any way or do you relate them in some way? Or is it more of those
1: qualitative aspects that you see the, the links? I'll confess it's very hard to gauge certain metrics, I can usually tell that the blogging works because the blogging, I can usually see how many people read the blog. Um, And in that case, I can usually see who's read the blog because I am able to see that. Uh, And last but not least, typically because I I post in places where I can view, see who's viewed me and those people who send a referral to me, that's how I can usually tell if that's been effective or not. But for certain Other types of writing, like the more mass writing, the thousand word articles, the things that I give to external content providers, uh, that's harder to gauge directly. But I can tell you this. You can say, I've been going to the gym, I'm getting better, but I can't tell if my health is improving because my weight stayed the same. Well, you know, you may have lost fat and gained some muscle and you can kind of see, you just can't prove it because the weight may be the same. But the truth is you've probably lost some fat. In this case, you know, The fact that my business has increased and the reputability uh, that people associate with me has increased – I could probably tell anybody anything regarding estate planning at this point, and they would just believe it because if they've done their due diligence, they know that I'm out there. It most certainly has. My revenue has increased every single year that I've actually increased my activities, including writing. So I have to assume writing has had an effect, but it's very hard for me to gauge. Again, that's why I say the best thing for me is to be active. I would love to spend all my time doing the most highly effective and efficient form of communication that I can. I'm willing to bet that writing is one of them.
0: You know, in terms of prioritizing how you spend your time because you only have so much time in the day and you are in an industry where you're billing you know for your time,
1: generally I, I work I work a good twelve hours a day, <laughs> probably six days a week, not five. I do take at least one day off a week. Though.
0: One day's a, a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. but that, that brings up some of the challenges of doing this. You only have so much time in the day, and writing takes time. Building contacts takes time promoting these articles whether it's your own blog or you know even just linking to an article you've written on say linkedin or facebook those things take time none of these things happen magically and then you know not being able to directly measure how it relates you know or how it affects your your bottom line numbers i mean those are challenges how do you how do you deal with those challenges with with the amount of time it takes on all ends um and then also not having like an absolute, I did four hours on these three articles and I got X amount of business from it, you know, because that can, it can wear on you right. in terms of right. your commitment. And I guess these are all commitment questions. Like how do you commit to it and how do you deal with sort of the challenges to that commitment?
1: Right. There are a few ways. I, like I said, I still blog. I have a blogging accountability buddy, We used to call it a blogability. And I've had a few of them. And the way that we do, our arrangements is that uh, I have to send her my blog and she has to send me her blog by 9 a.m. every Friday or else we owe the other person $20 and then we have to have the proofread, redlined and corrected version back to the person by the next Tuesday or there's another $20 that's exchanged. And that's been really effective in helping me to make sure I blog. Other things require scheduling. I have to schedule two hours a week to study. I have to schedule three to four hours a month at a few times. I should say throughout the month to provide the longer content articles. You just got to put the time aside because otherwise this is what happens. You get busy, 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 busy. You stop writing, you stop meeting with people. And the next thing you know, you're not that busy. And now you have to start the train up rolling again. I get it. It's a tough life. If this was an easy job, everyone would do it and everyone would be successful. The truth is I do feel like competitors who are out there, uh, uh, they they may slack off sometimes. I'm not saying I work constantly and I get it right 100%, but when the train is rolling, I try to keep it rolling. I'm not going to say woe is me and stop doing it because business is good. Uh, you just got to commit to those times. You put it in your calendar and you live with it. That being said, there are things that will eat up your time. Uh, You know, writing is no longer self-edifying. I'm not doing it for an ego. I'm doing this for business, and I'm doing it to inform the public. I honestly believe that I'm trying to help other people when I write. So if I start writing an article and I've put in half an hour, 45 minutes, two hours, and I realize it's a dead end, I drop it. I don't try to keep running with it. The most important thing I can tell a writer out there is this— if it's bad from the start and it's bad in the middle, it's probably going to be bad in the end and you can't put little fillers in the middle of it that's going to make it look good. Move on. Don't waste your time. Start a new article. Just throw it in a trash bin. Who cares? No one will ever know. If you feel like going back to it in another six months, that's fine. But that's the big thing, avoiding waste because there's not a lot of time out there. There's not a lot of time. And so the idea is when you're writing, make sure the article is compelling. And the moment you get that smell that it's not gonna be good, throw it out.
0: Have you done any training on this? Have you done workshops or anything else to work on your writing? Or has this been just a skill that you've had and that you've developed through through doing it?
1: I, I was an awful writer, Michael. And, and, and some people, my competition may read it and say I'm still awful, but I, I care to disagree. I had very little formal writing experience. And very little of my career has been based in fields where I would need to be a creative writer. A lot of the writing I started off doing was continuing legal education manuals. But something about my life experience had put me in a position where I said, People just want to understand what they're paying $400 an hour for. People want to know when they read a legal article, what the the purpose was, what the intent of it was, what the content was. And I just said, I'm going to, and I don't like using the term dumb it down, but I'm going to make it understandable. That's a lot of self-teaching. Now, don't get me wrong. When I have blogging accountability buddies or accountability partners, uh, one of them was a creative writer who now works for Hollywood. I mean, she's, she's a really good writer. Uh, so she was able to help me, and I learned from her, go from a passive to a more active voice. My current partner is also a trust and estates attorney, and she helps me correct anything that may be hard to understand from a legal perspective for people who are in the, the, the populace. Uh, so, it's having people who can help that's really improved my writing. Would I love to do a public writing class? Sure. I'd also love to do the Iron Man. I'd also love to, to climb to the top of Mount Everest. The only thing stopping me is me and the fact that I work 65 hours a week, 70 hours a week. So, I would suggest pairing up. If you don't have the opportunity to do a creative writing class, it'll help you find your voice. And yet, at the same time, it'll also help you to have some type of accountability.
0: So you mentioned the accountability partner, and you mentioned the PR person that you've worked with. Any other uh, strategic partners that you've worked with, uh, aside from the the end publishers, anyone else that, that's helped you
1: on this journey? Sometimes the people who work for the content providers have been extremely helpful for me. So for example, I, I brought them up a few times, but if I work with Investopedia, remember they're a huge content-related site. Um, I'll work with their staff sometimes. Publishers are incredibly helpful or editors. I'm kind of raw, like you've come to, to perhaps you know at least the way that I talk, I don't know. But if you read my articles and if you saw them in their, their original format, they're kind of rough around the edges. They definitely need to be toned down a little bit. Perhaps the language needs to be changed. Perhaps I still use a few too many words. Perhaps I use a few too many commas. So I find that editors are extremely helpful in my world. Uh, the other people have just been people who who do what I do. You know, If I have a question about something that I'm going to write and it's a legal topic, I'll feel free to reach out to my colleagues. I have a study group uh, and my study group has been great for me to bounce ideas off of. I tend to disagree with a lot of what a lot of people say in there, uh, but that's just me because I just tend to disagree with a lot of people, but they've been incredibly helpful. And last but not least, uh, I started this career as my second career and I met a mentor early on who, though she's now retired, someone I still have a great deal of respect for. And I've asked her questions as time goes on. And last but not least is my wife. Mom will love to know that I'm writing articles. My wife is the one that says, no one cares about this. This is all about, you know, something you just want to put out there. And uh, and she's she's very good at keeping me in line. You know, as, as we kind of come to a
0: close, I was hoping that you might have, you know, a piece of advice or two for other attorneys who are looking to use content and, and looking to reach sort of a mainstream audience. What would you
1: suggest? It's three points that I spoke about indirectly, but I'll I'll highlight right now. Number one is activity. You've gotta be active. It is showing up at the gym. It's writing. When things are going slow, write. When you have to uh, to do work uh, in the next 48 hours, Try to prioritize the work, but fit in that blog. You know, a blog can be done in 15 minutes, maybe even 10 minutes, and you can make it appealing. It doesn't have to be long. Uh, So stay active. The more active you are, the more chances you'll create something that's gonna get picked up. Number two, like I was saying before, find someone who will help you to be accountable. It's just like going to the gym. If I wanna go to the gym, eh, I might not feel like it today, but if I have an appointment with a trainer or if I have a fee that I have to pay, (laughs) then I'm going to more likely go because I hate to lose that that fee. I hate to disappoint other people. Having an accountability partner is incredibly helpful, even for larger articles. And even if I'm not going to get published and she is, what a great opportunity for me to read some of her writing and hopefully to learn from it. That's not a waste of time. Learning is never a waste of time in any of our careers. And last but not least is give time time. You know, if I had stopped blogging and never came back to it, uh, if I decided that writing was a complete waste of my time and I stopped seven years ago and I never picked it up again, What a huge mistake, the opportunities that I have right now. New York Times, NASDAQ, Yahoo Finance. I mean, it's hard to imagine that my career would be even nearly to the point of, of success that it is right now if I hadn't given time time. Yeah, I gave up for a little while, and then I picked it up, and no one cared about any of my writing. And then one day, as I kept doing it, three or four years in, the second time around, finally started getting picked up, and that's what made the difference wait for it, keep putting in the activity, have people oversee your content and your process and, uh, and have faith that you will eventually get found.
0: Dan, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio
1: podcast. It's a great time, Michael, thank you.
0: And thank you to our listeners who've joined us for this episode. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on Google Play. And wherever you find us, please like the episode or leave a review. Extended content, including photographs and links, especially to some of Dan's articles, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com. It is just legalmarketing.studio. Please reach out via the contact page on our website if you have a topic you'd like to discuss on the show or know someone who might. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business, a full-service corporate photography studio focused on the legal industry based in Brooklyn, New York, and working with clients nationally. If you're from is updating its website, hiring new attorneys or revamping its brand and marketing materials, please give us a call. We'd love to explore collaborative opportunities. More information can be found at picturemorebusiness.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening.